Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. This interview, I have the opportunity to talk to Hannah Hong, co-founder at Must Love, a Los Angeles-based ice cream company founded by her and her best friend Molly. She talks about her experience working in brand strategy and innovation, and how that taught her a lot about the attributes of a winning CPG brand and product. She talks about the strategy that Must Love used to get into grocery stores in Southern California, and then to expand nationally from there. She also talks about the importance of maintaining relationships and how a chance meeting with a customer who loved her product uh, in Hawaii led to an introduction to a Costco buyer and eventually to a deal. Uh, She talks about the challenges of distributing a temperature-controlled product like ice cream in the CPG space and how being on Shark Tank forced them to embrace direct-to-consumer and just figure it out. Most of all, I loved Hannah's passion for the space, for her brand and for her product, and her expertise about CPG in general. It was a fun interview, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, Hannah, how are you doing? Thanks for uh, jumping on today with me. Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Ken. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to to digging into your business. You've had a lot going on, um, so I want to hear your story. This is going to be great. <laughs> great. Um, well, let's dig in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like to uh, kick off the podcast with uh, with a quick quote. Um, you know, maybe something that's that's impactful to you in in some way. Do you have something in mind that you could share with the audience? Yeah, this is actually a really big. Um, it's not catchy, but it's a it's a guiding principle for my best friend and co-founder, Molly and I. It's that if our business is a success, but our friendship is a failure, then we are failures. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And um and you mentioned, yeah, you, you went into business with with your best friend, Molly. Yes. Um, and that can always be a little bit tricky, you know. Um <laughs> And so uh, I'm curious, how do you how do you make sure that you actually um, kind of follow that principle? Um, So before we started our company together, which was like five years ago now, um, we kind of did our own kind of self-guided premarital counseling because starting a business (laughs) together is really like getting married. It's a lot of work and it's a really big commitment. And so Mm -hmm. um, we talked about 
kind of like how you really would if you were marrying somebody like um uh like what are our values what do we want what are our goals um and then what are we willing to do to get to those goals like those kinds of just foundational questions we spent an entire weekend basically interviewing each other to be able to verify that we were on the same page and you know and we did this but molly and i have known each other since we were like 20 years old 19 and 20 and mm-hmm. so um she's younger than me by a year but uh, so <laughs> um, so we've known each other for a long long time like 17 years now um so a lot of this stuff we knew we were on the same page kind of instinctively but i think it's it's still important to be explicit and to basically write it down um, so that you know for sure and you don't leave anything unsaid or vague. Um, yeah. And so yeah. That, that was that. And we revisit those that conversation kind of around January because, you know, people are naturally just thinking about like New Year's resolutions or their goals for the upcoming year and where they are in their lives. And so we always end up talking about it around um, January every year since then. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Got it. No, that's, that's good advice. Um, and especially the part about revisiting it, you know, because I think yeah. sometimes you can have these conversations early on and then things get forgotten. And, uh, Oh, if we could show you our business plan from year one versus now, (laughs) it's like year one is like, that's cute. (laughs) Like that's what you (laughs) thought world was going to be like. (laughs) I know it's, it's kind of funny, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's actually better, you know, it's sort of the being a little bit naive, you know, when you're Mm -hmm. going into something as hard as starting a business, like not knowing everything is actually probably okay. Um, Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, just how hard it can be sometimes. Like, like, I think, I think that's surprising to, to a lot of entrepreneurs. So my question was just kind of, you know, personally, I mean, if you think about your, your, your 19, 20 year old self, do you think you would have done it still if you knew how difficult it could be? Well, we were 19, 20 when we met. Um, we were not okay, 19 man. and 20 when we started the company. <laughs> uh-huh. We started just five years ago, but um, knowing how difficult it is and continues to be. Um, I think we still would do it. We both grew up um, watching our parents start their own businesses in a country, you know, where they didn't know the language and had to learn lots of new things. And it's and I think that kind of um, education from uh-huh. uh, watching our parents really go through the hustle and the grit to be able to, you know, find their slice of the American dream pie, like that sort of thing. Um, it really instilled in us that kind of entrepreneurial drive. And so I think that we would definitely do it, you know, maybe if something's differently now that we've gone through it once, but uh-huh, um, but we uh-huh. definitely would have done it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course it's an impossible question to to answer, right? Um, yeah. Because you don't know those things. You know, Who says sort of no? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's sort of like having kids, you know, like uh, would you, <laughs> would you have kids if you knew how difficult it could be, you know? And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, of course, you know, because of all the good times and, and uh, you know, it's definitely worth it, but uh, sometimes it's better not to know exactly how hard some of these things are, you know? Yes. Um, that makes, yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's let's just jump into your background. Um, so you mentioned that uh, that your parents uh, are immigrants, right? Where, where yes. are they from? Uh, so Molly and I, both our parents are from South Korea, and um, both our parents started their own businesses in different industries and things like that. But um, so actually, we both grew up in Southern California, and okay. um, you know, and, and the like cultural 
and our family expectations were, you know, do well in school, go to college and find like normal professional careers. Maybe don't become ice cream makers. Um, <laughs> but and we did, you know, when we graduated undergrad, Molly and I met at Berkeley. We were both business majors and that's how we met. Um, she became an investment banker and I was in management consulting, like very traditional type of jobs, graduating with that degree from Berkeley. And so, you know, we had like pretty typical, I would think, kinds of white collar professional jobs. Um, and we went on to both get our MBAs and um, at different schools. And I, I specifically went to UCLA Anderson um, here in LA so that mm -hmm. I could focus on marketing and work in food. Like that had always been my ultimate goal of getting my MBA is to be in brand management in CPG. And um, so when I graduated, um, I ended up working at uh, Bolt House Farms um, oh, out great. in yeah. Santa Monica. Yeah. Um, and made like lifelong friends there. Um, and then Molly, when she graduated, she focused actually on operations. And I think she was just more open in terms of her career search, but a priority was for her to get back to California. And she was, she was at MIT. So really, really far away. And yeah. then there just happened to be an opening on my team, um, in innovation at Bolt House. And our boss is, was, uh, very, like open to different backgrounds. Like you didn't have to have that traditional CPG background to come work for her. She just cared like if you were smart and if you um, had a passion for the industry and um, and you had like a creative problem solving mindset. And so uh, she interviewed Molly. I like slid her resume across the desk as if like she was just someone I knew from college, not like my <laughs> actual best friend who was my matron of honor or maid of honor at my wedding. So I like <laughs> totally played it down that like I would have been flipping out if she didn't get the job. But um, <laughs> So she of course got the job. She's amazing. And, um, and at the time still nobody knew we like were actually best friends. And I think that facade lasted for about two hours into her first day. And then people were like, you guys know each other really, really well. And it's like, yes, we're actually best friends. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so we worked together in CPG Innovation at Bolt House. And um, it was during that time that she made for me banana ice cream. And that was kind of like the beginning of everything. Okay. Yeah, we definitely want to dig into that. Um, so um, what did, uh, I'm just curious, what did Molly study at MIT? What did she do? Oh, well, she got her MBA too. Um, she okay, was focused MBA, on okay. operations. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Um, okay, so what does um, innovation look like at Bolt, Bolt House Farm? Like what kind of stuff were you doing? Um, well, the stuff that never launched, I don't think I can talk about. Yeah, but you know, working for any like larger CPG company, there are a lot of... Um, like research hurdles, I, I guess I would call them, that you have to meet to be able to launch something. And, and now having launched my own products, I understand because the investment is, is huge to be able to bring something to market at a scale that makes sense for like a Fortune 500 company, right? Um, and Bolt House at the time was owned by Campbell's. Um, so you have to be able to bring something to market that is big enough. And so... But sometimes, you know, when you have innovation ideas, they're like 
especially if it's like a groundbreaking category, you, it's really hard to quantify that. Um, so I think a lot of the time in innovation was spent on trying to quantify that and trying to make sure that the product was the right product for our company. That said, Bolt House is like incredibly entrepreneurial. I think it still is. I still have friends who work there and um, the way they approach innovation was, you know, you had to do some of that, but there was a lot of room for you to fight for ideas if you had heart for it, even if like the numbers didn't quite like it wasn't like a slam dunk case. And I really appreciated that about the leadership team there that um, they grew an innovation team that was allowed to do that. Okay, got it. And it, it sounds like it sounds like you enjoyed what you were doing and you have you had a good time there. Um, so tell tell us sort of the evolution. So um, mm-hmm. what happened next? You, you mentioned that that Molly made you banana ice cream, right? Um, yes. Wh- um, what's what's the context of that? Yeah. So you know, I mean, I did love my job, um, and uh, I, I think it's working in innovation and marketing at a food company is kind of like the best job ever. So, um, so I loved my job. Um, uh, but when Molly made for me banana and ice cream, it's at the time, it was just frozen bananas in a food processor with a splash of almond milk. You'll see it on Instagram and Pinterest, like everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea what this product was, um, or this recipe. She just made it for me after dinner, just because she had frozen bananas in her freezer and we wanted ice cream, but both of us are lactose intolerant. And she was like, Oh, you know what we can make. And then she made this and, um, it blew my socks off because it just hit all our needs and more like she and I are both lactose intolerant, but it was just bananas and all milk, super clean, just real fruit. You Mm -hmm. could feel good about eating it. And it tasted amazing. Like it was like super soft. Like it was like eating soft serve. Um, and so when I tasted it, our day jobs are thinking about consumer insights and how to bring like the right product to market. When I tasted it, like it just, I immediately understood the consumer insight there because I'm, and Molly, we're the consumers. And um, I was just like, why is no one packaging this? Because this is an incredible product. Um, And then we froze that very batch in some just Tupperware from the house and put it just in our home freezers. And then the next day when I tried to eat it, I realized why absolutely no one packaged it because (laughs) it froze like super, super hard, like a rock. And, um, And, you know, I mean, I guess like I could have just been like, oh, I guess that's why and left it at that. But I couldn't get this product out of my head. And I just felt instinctively like in my gut, like this is this product might have have legs. And um, I couldn't I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I kept iterating on like different recipes in like a home, you know, like those home ice cream makers, the kind where you freeze the bowl in a freezer, like you might make ice cream with your kids using a like a product like that. Um, it's not like a professional ice cream maker, but I had one and so did Molly. And so we would just make like different batches trying to figure out how to make a product that met the consumer expectation of that occasion, which is scoopable ice cream right out of the freezer. And, um, but staying true to the ethos of the inspiration, right? Like it being made with bananas and being um, really wholesome and recognizable ingredients. And then, uh, we got there or we got close to there. And as soon as we got Mm -hmm. to like, a an MVP, right? Like a close enough product. I immediately quit my job. I was just like, I really believe in this. I'm going to do it. And I just quit. And so, um, I didn't even have a business plan to be honest. Um, but Molly, Molly took more convincing and she needed a business plan. So she, she 
made us write one and and then she left. And so then we've both been full-time on it for like five years now. Sorry. Once so, you ask me a question, I like launch into my spiel and then I don't know where to stop sometimes. And I just <laughs> <keep going. laughs> no, no, no. It's great. Um, and I'll be honest. That's why I love talking to entrepreneurs. You know, it's just the passion just comes through and, and we can definitely <laughs> sense that, you know, and, and, and that's awesome. So I, I, a couple questions about that. Um, did, were you calling it nice cream? Like, like where did that name come from? Were you calling it that, that early on? Um, you know, I think that's just what people call it. Like if you, okay. it's like, if you not Google something it right now, Okay. Yeah. Um, And then also, so it sounds like you were thinking about it as a product and as a business, you know, pretty Mm -hmm. much from the time you tasted it was, was Molly thinking the same thing or, or no? Um, I think that's kind of our mindset because that's, I mean, we're, we're business people. We always thought we would do something together one day and we just didn't realize it was going to be ice cream. But um, I, I do think that is how she thought about it from the beginning too. But she's, you know, she's the more measured one. I'm the one that flies off the handle a little bit. And so, <laughs> um, so I was willing to take the leap right away. And she needed a little bit more um, time and concrete steps to be able to like, feel confident in plunging into yeah. like full time. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, and that makes sense. And probably why you guys make such a great team, right? Um, (laughs) um, So the other question is, is, you know, you had obviously experience, um, you know, researching and really digging into these other CPG brands, Mm -hmm. but, you know, for, for maybe somebody that, that doesn't have that same experience, like what, what about it, you know, made you think that it would, would be a good, you know, the potential CPG product, you know, um, you, you talked a little bit about the product ethos and, and things like that, but what about like, um, did you even think about any of the, the metrics, you know, the, um, the margins in, in a product mm-hmm. like that? Did you take any of that kind of stuff into consideration? Um, yes, of course. And, you know, like I kind of mentioned earlier how what I really appreciated about um, our former employer is that they left room for um, ideas just because you had heart for it to be able to fight for those ideas. And I am definitely, definitely like a more gut driven marketer. Like I had a feeling. And so I, that makes me sound crazy. I know, but, um, but, <laughs> no, no. but that that's like your instinct. Right. And maybe that comes from years of training. So, but my instinct was that this had, um, this had legs. And so um, with that, we still needed a business plan for us to be able to execute. Um, and so, you know, we did do our due diligence, like, does this meet like at least some minimal threshold margin that we see line of sight to? Cause let me tell you, we did not meet those margins year one because, you know, you're not buying things by the pallet at that time. Um, so, um, so could we see line of sight to a sustainable margin? Um, and, Is there, of course, consumer appetite, which is that was what I had my gut feeling on, like there is consumer appetite for this, but is there retailer appetite for this? And if you have something that doesn't require you to maintain a certain like temp state, so if you sold like like granola bars, for example, or like chips that can be shelf stable, it might not be as important immediately, but eventually you're going to get to a point where you have to think like, is a brick and mortar retailer going to take this? And uh, mm-hmm. but for us, because we have a temp controlled product, it has to stay frozen. Melted ice cream is essentially garbage. So like, I mean, it's it's trash. So like, it has to stay frozen during the entire um, value chain. Going wholesale is the easiest way to. It is it's like the most. Um, 
it makes the most sense. And that's also how people still mostly buy groceries, especially things that are temp controlled. So um, we knew that we needed to prove out that a retailer would be interested. And so that's why when we first started our operations, um, amongst many, many reasons, but one of them was that we needed to start small to just test if any retailers would take this because we, you know, didn't want to gamble everything and like lease, uh, sign a year long lease somewhere or something like that and not have any proof of concept. And so we took that MVP recipe I mentioned um, and then started making it in a kitchen that you would rent by the hour. So every hour we could make literally, I think at most because of the size of the machine we were using, like 20 pints of ice cream. We oh. never made enough ice cream at that time to even pay for that hour of renting that kitchen. So like we <laughs> knew though, however, it was like an investment in our idea to test if it was worth investing more, because obviously, even though we never paid for that hour with the product we made, if we leased like a kitchen and bought bigger um, scale equipment, that would have been like cash out the door immediately in a, in a much bigger investment without any proof of concept. So that was how we approached it. And um, we walked door to door to like natural grocers, um, independently run mom and pop shops here in Los Angeles. And um made our first few sales calls ourselves. And, um, those were hilarious. Let me tell you. So, um, but well, yeah, that was, actually, those, those actually, were our benchmarks. Yeah. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. I actually want to, I want to hear about, um, you know, so a lot to unpack there, but I, I want to <laughs> hear about this sales pitch, right? So you, yeah, you've made this MVP of this ice cream. Um, you've got, I, I assume, you know, 20 pints or, you know, not, a, not a ton. Um, no. but you, you walk into a grocer and what do you say? You know, what's the so um, the first pitch we did was um, was at this local grocers grocery specialty grocery store in downtown Los Angeles called Grow, and we're still carried there. It's my first account ever, and we <laughs> walked cool. in, and um, I one did not know how to purchase ice cream packaging in small quantities. And so instead I just went to smart and final and purchased the only packaging I could find that seemed close enough. And they were clear deli cups. So basically like the stuff you put hummus in, um, uh -huh. like they look like hummus containers and our ice cream was made with bananas and dates. So they also kind of looked like hummus at the time too. So, um, <laughs> uh, so I had that packed in a cooler with dry ice. Um, and then we just walked in and I had, and this is so typical big CPG, right? Like I had a 20 page PowerPoint presentation on like the product and who the consumer is and why we're a fit for this retailer and all these things. We showed him the samples and started going through the deck. And he was just like, I'm just going to stop you right here. It was like, after one slide, he was like, I'm just going to taste it. And he grabbed a spoon out of his like pen, pen cup, like he had on his desk and uh -huh. he just tasted it. And he was like, I like it. When can you bring in a case? <laughs> and that was it. Oh, well, no, he asked, do you have packaging? Because it was obviously in like hummus containers. So sure. then I like was like, yes, on flight 12, there's mock-up packaging. And so he was like, cute. Okay, that looks good. Um, when can you deliver? And that was it. That was my first sales call. And, awesome. um, yeah. and I think it, what it really taught me though was like at the end of the day, taste is what matters. I mean, you need all the like product attributes to really move and all those things and for it to make sense, but um, you need to be able to taste the product. And especially when you're a tiny brand, you need to get to the point real fast. So had you set up an appointment with that buyer? I did. I, um, 
I called in advance to ask if I could speak with like the manager or the store buyer and um, they gave me an appointment. But sometimes, you know, that's not possible because if you imagine like what goes into running a independently run grocery store day to day, like that person is incredibly busy. Um, So sometimes I would show up to try to get an appointment, but then I would also be ready to pitch them right there, which again, if I had a shelf stable product would be a lot easier because you could just keep that in your car. But I had to always have like coolers and go buy dry ice and have things like temp controlled, which was really challenging. Um, uh, but, but, you know, you know, I'm starting from the ground up. I need my first few doors to make sure like this product makes sense. Like I was willing to do that, of course, um, and make sure that, we had the opportunity for the sale when the opportunity presented itself. So, um, sure. I think that's really important. So with, um, besides the, the taste, you know, what do you, mm-hmm. what else do you think that the, the buyer, um, liked about your product and about, about you guys and your brand? Yeah. And, you know, our product has gone through iterations from that very first MVP. Like it's only gotten better, but we've always stayed true to the inspiration. So we always use real recognizable ingredients, simple recipe, and are, are of course, plant-based. And um, it's sweetened with real fruit. Uh, at the time, we only had a line made with bananas, but today we have a line made with oat milk and we have, so it does not taste like bananas for those banana averse. Um, <laughs> we, so we have a line of pints, which is what we started with. And we also have a line of novelty bars. Um, so like chocolate dipped ice cream bars and they're all plant-based, all sweetened with real fruit, um, no refined sugar and um most importantly, very delicious. And so I think those things are the things that still resonate with consumers today. When we talk to our consumers, they always say the reason why they tried our product for the first time is because of the clean ingredient list, but why they come back is because it tastes good. Um, So I think product's slightly different from back then, but it's still the same in the most important ways. Okay, got it. Um, and, and you kind of laughed a little bit about your 20 page, you know, presentation, your PowerPoint that you, that you guys, that you had ready. Uh, and was it, I guess, was Molly going with you or was that just you yes. at that first meeting? No, it's a whole thing. The two of us go and I say, hi, I'm Hannah. And she goes, hi, I'm Molly. And we say in unison, <laughs> we're the co-founders of Must Love. Like it's like a, go. like a little song and dance we do together. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I guess, um, you know, so you kind of laugh about the 20, the 20 page presentation. What, why, why is that funny? And how have you changed that when you talk to buyers today? I think, um, obviously when you work for like a really big company, there's a lot more time that the buyer gives you because you're a category leader or you're the um, category captain of whatever. And so you have a lot more information to share, like uh, stuff from syndicated data and things like that. So that's why those decks are so long when you work at a big company. Um, for us, you know, we that was our training and we thought that we needed to have like that kind of information. But when you you're a small company, you are pretty much on the cutting edge of innovation is my opinion. Um, because you are willing to try things that big companies aren't, you know, aren't quite ready to do yet. And so that's the value you're bringing to the meeting is showing them like what you're doing, what your product is and showing them the consumer insight that you're seeing that the big companies aren't. And so the way we approach these, um, buyer meetings, I think we shed some of that, like more corporate polished, sort of um 
suit, I guess, Mm -hmm. and are just more ourselves and just sharing more about us because like, yeah, I don't know the cat. I mean, I know the category, but I'm not going to have as much information at my fingertips as like Unilever. Like they're going to know way more than me about category trends based on data. Like I can't, I don't have that kind of information to share, but I can share from a consumer perspective, what we're seeing and why our product is, is doing so well. Okay. Awesome. Um, so let's, uh, let's fast forward a little bit. You know, there's a couple, mm-hmm. couple, you know, big milestones. It looks like, you know, you're able to raise some money from friends and family um, and then continue to, to build your brand. Um, it looks like at least from what I read, um, you were able to then raise from, um, I guess that, that, uh, that round that you raised, um, I'm reading 1.4 million. Is that accurate? Uh, from friends, family, and institutions. Is that right? I think that's like, all, all in of the many small little rounds, but yeah. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Like not all at once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the fundraising is just something that that I think, you know, any entrepreneur uh, needs to get mm-hmm. familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of the process, what what worked, what what do you think investors were, were looking for, you know, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to dig into that for a second, if yeah. you Yeah, and, um, you know, I it, it really depends on your stage, right? And I think even still though, like the thing that is most important is, is the founders. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we're still looking for people who are investing in basically me and Molly, but those first few phone calls, especially the ones that were to my actual literal friends and family, I'm asking my friends and family to trust me. So that's who they are investing in. And it's like, yeah, you can like, and obviously you have to have your basic information and your numbers and things like that. And it has to make sense. But at the end of the day, that, that is who they're, what they're investing in. It is, is you. Um, even now, when we talk to potential investors or anything like that, of course, like the business case needs to make sense, but ultimately they're still investing in Molly and myself as, as like the leaders. Um, so I think that is um, something you can't overlook. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, you know, and, and we went through, you know, at Fiddle, we went through a friends and family round, you know, as well. And yeah. one of the things that I realized is that a lot of times, um, you know, like a, a friend or uh, even family's perception of you and your trustworthiness is kind of, it's built over the entire relationship, right? So yes. this just, just happens to be the, you know, the business that you're doing and, um, you know, the the specific circumstance, but um, their their trust in you and and you know their confidence in you is built over years and years and years, right? Yeah, so. and let me tell you, I mean, I don't know if you felt similarly, but like those first initial like asks I made because they were from literal friends and family. Like I always wanted to puke while doing it because <laughs> I'm always like so nervous. Like you're asking someone who you know personally to trust you with their money, and mm-hmm. um, and it's like. I don't know. I, I was so uncomfortable at first, um, because I just, I just like felt so weird having like doing that. But, um, but you know, after the first few, you get a little bit more used to that queasy feeling and you just fight through it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I had that experience too. And, and, you know, I had this one where it's actually my wife's, um, my wife's sister's family, right? So Mm -hmm. my wife's, sister and her and her husband that ended up investing and they were grateful that I even considered them and, and asked them, you know, to, to invest, you know, and it was almost like, like, Hey, here's an opportunity. I obviously, you know, really believe in it. Let me tell you about it. 
um, I would feel bad if, you know, uh, we blew up and, you know, this, this company really, you know, took off. And I didn't even mention that, that this was an opportunity, you know? And so, yeah. I don't know, it, it's nice to think about it from that perspective as well. And it's kind of how I would feel, you know, let's say that, you know, like my brother was starting this hot new company and, you know, it was taken off. If he didn't, you know, present me with the opportunity to get involved or to put a little bit of money in, I think yeah. that, that I, you know, I'd feel a little shortchanged, you know? So I don't know. It, it's interesting to look at it that view. way. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I wish I, I, I had that point of view earlier. <laughs> I think it's like, it's like a mindset thing, right? Like coming from like a place of like having to ask for something versus like offering an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So you guys raised a little bit of money. You got off the ground. Um, you know, let's talk just a little bit about, um, you know, those years leading up to, um, and then uh, you guys were just on Shark Tank. So I want to make sure that we, that we cover that, but, but tell us just a little bit about the growth. I know it's, you know, it's a couple years there, but tell us about, you know, maybe a couple milestones that, that you were able to hit in that time frame. Yeah. I mean, I was mentioning how we were renting an hourly kitchen. Um, we grew very quickly to a year long lease, like that, like our own leased space. Um, but we were mm -hmm. manufacturing our ice cream ourselves because, you know, this, this is not how you make ice cream. You don't blend frozen bananas together to make ice cream normally at like a ice cream factory. And so we like, honestly did not know how to co-pack it. And so we were like, okay, well to stay true to what our inspiration is, we have to do it ourselves for a while. And so that's what we did. And, um, until we won Sprouts. And when we got into Sprouts um, and not just regionally at the time, the volume, you know, you do your MBA throughput exercise on paper and you're like, uh -huh. oh, I can totally do this. Um, and I totally could not <laughs> do it. It was yeah. terrible. And so, um, uh, I mean, I did get an A in operations for the record, but I definitely <laughs> got an F in real life because it was just a lot, you know, it's just different in real life. And so um, we were like, we definitely need to co-pack, um, but our ice cream is very special. And so we need to find a partner who can work with us on this and really stay true to what our product is. And so that took a year and going through many, many co-packer tests to get to a point where we're like, okay, this is the co-packer for us. They understand our product with these and these like adjustments, we can make what we want to make. And so we actually still co-pack with them. And, um, do you, do you mind, uh, yeah. uh, let me, mm -hmm. let me interrupt there just real quick, because yes. that, that step right there, that's actually one that a, a lot of entrepreneurs um, in this space struggle with, you know, mm -hmm. maybe just um, touch on, you know, what are, what are some of the, the red flags, right? Like mm -hmm. when you, when you talk to a, a co-packer and you didn't end up going with them and then, yeah. you know, what, what is it that they gave you the confidence that, that these guys could be a good partner with you guys? So I think, um, so many thoughts, but um, one is, one is you have to understand your position of power, right? So like at the time, I, I mean, even today, or not even today, we're still very small, but like we don't have that much power as a brand. Um, mm -hmm. So I am not like a huge, huge brand that's going to buy like 50% of your capacity for the year. So I don't have that kind of purchase power with a co-packer, right? So you're coming in from a position of, of less strength when you are talking to a co-packer, depending on their size. But um, in, in my category, I, that's the situation. And so you have to be pretty careful, right? Like you can't just be super judgy and demanding 
right from the beginning. You have to really feel out the relationship. And um, it's also challenging because you're coming from a position of less power. But when you talk to them, I think something that um, that the co-packers that we do work with um, that has been an important trait is their willingness to learn from us and not being like, this is exactly what you need to do and how you need to do it. And this is what the recipe needs to be like. Otherwise, your ice cream is not a real product. Like there were co-packers who were like that, especially yeah. in the beginning before we had significant retail, like, you know, distribution. And right. so I think gauging, especially if you have like an innovative product, their willingness to work with you on doing something different is really important um, for, for us. And I think for a lot of the brands that are more innovative. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, you know, kind of a, a, a flexibility and a willingness to, to change their process a little bit and not just yeah. coming like, okay, we're the experts here. We know how to make ice cream. So, you know, this is how you have to make your product. Yes. And I mean, inevitably you have to get to the, what's your volume? What are your minimum orders? Like conversation. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's an important part of making sure like you're a fit for each other. Um, but like th that's something, any category, any co-packer, you're going to have to get there. Okay. Got it. Um, all right. And um, any, anything else about that, you know, maybe some red flags, like things that you, you looked out for, um, you know, that, would kind of end the conversation like these guys aren't going to work? I think, um, oh, man, I haven't thought about it that much because you feel so burned from the bad experiences. Like you want to like, it's like a really bad breakup and you like want to forget about it as like quickly <laughs> as possible. Um, yeah. But um, looking back, I think if I think about the ones where I think like that was a mistake to work with them or, you know, that could have gone better. Um, I'm trying to think what are the, what are the common threads? But I think one of them would be um, like lack of transparency. Um, they can, if someone is saying all the right things to you, but then when you ask them a more detailed question or ask to be on site and they won't let you do those things, then I think you have to be like a, a little bit aware or worried that there might be something going on. Right, right. Okay. That yeah, sounds that like so sense. basic, but you know, when you are so excited to start manufacturing at scale, you get kind of like blinded by the possibility of like scale or finding someone that finally will work well with you or all those things. And so you kind of maybe ignore those kinds of red flags. Well, yeah. And I mean, even furthermore, I think, you know, sometimes you get to a place where you feel like, um, you know, there's almost nobody that will work with you. Right. And so you're yeah. almost desperate, you know, where you feel like, oh, you, you guys will do it. OK, cool. And so then you forget to really do your due diligence, realizing, oh, hey, yeah, Ken, I feel like you're looking into my soul right now. That is exactly <laughs> how I felt. Like I was just like, like, please let this be the one like, please. And then so I was willing to overlook things that normally might have been you might have been like, why can't I be there? Like things like that. So, um, yeah, 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 you well, are so I, right. I, I, I think it's just common. I, you know, like I've been there. Um, I think everybody's <laughs> been there, you know? And so you just don't want to make the same mistake twice, you know? So. Yes. Okay. So, so um, uh, tell us just a little bit about distribution. You said that you guys were able to get into Sprout, you know, how did that come about? Um, you know, it's a real, real meat cute for, for considering like, actually it's not like a meat cute. It's like online dating now, I guess. But um, 
uh, they actually found us on RangeMe. Um, and oh, cool. yeah. uh, like we d- did not have a premium account or anything, but like the um, someone from Sprouts reached out to us. And so we were like, oh, um, this is when we were literally in like 40 doors, just local Whole Foods and um, a few uh, those independent natural mom and pops here in LA. And so I was just very surprised to get the call um, or email, I guess. And um, we set up a meeting and that was the beginning. And so we started regionally with them, but last year went national um, across the country with Sprouts and are launching two new items there, our oat milk pints. Um, First time at Sprouts. So it's super exciting. Um, And yeah, that's how Sprouts happened. Oh, can I nice. share how we met Costco though? Cause that's, I think like the cutest story considering like <laughs> sure. our industry. So we used to have a soft serve pop-up in Hawaii. Um, and we used to make banana soft serve and, um, like, oh, the Hawaii Costco buyer's wife liked our soft serve, realized we had a CPG product, told her husband, he brought us in for a meeting. And then he introduced us to his LA counterpart, um, who is, who is the LA buyer for ice cream, um, for the region. And, uh, then we cultivated that relationship with her for like another year before we got a test and then we got a rotation. And so this year we'll be doing our second rotation with the LA region. It actually launches in like three weeks. So if this airs in time, if you live in LA, please go to Costco and buy our must love product. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, and you said that, um, I guess with Sprout though, um, are you national? I am. Uh, I'm, yes. I'm wondering how I can get some of this is, is what I'm curious about. I so think I we have shipped you some. Oh, oh, did you? you? Uh, yes, I, I think I did. I got an address and I shipped you some, but, um, uh, we are at Sprouts nationally. The new, the new oat milk pints will hit stores like by the end of this month. I think that's the reset. So soon. Cool. cool. I'll send you some coupons, Ken. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I appreciate it. And um, I'll look for that shipment. I haven't seen anything yet, but that uh, that's, you know, you know it, it, I always do these around, uh, around noon and I'm like mm-hmm. starving and you're, you're talking about ice cream and it sounds great. And uh, so anyway, um, I'm really craving it right now is what I'm saying, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll make sure to get you some if you haven't gotten it yet. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's fast forward. Let's, how did Shark Tank uh, come about? Yeah, you know, that's also, uh, they actually approached us like a few years ago. Um, and at the time, you know, we were in just, it's before we were in Sprouts or or right before our reset. That's when they mm-hmm. reached out to us. And so, you know, I was mentioning how like my throughput exercise was not good and I was not doing well on the manufacturing. By that, I mean, I was running like double shifts, like building pallets at 11 o'clock at night. Like I was, I was just slaving <laughs> yeah. away. Like it was just like really, really hard, um, operationally, but that's when they approached us. And so obviously like, I'm not going to let this opportunity pass by. And so, you know, we, we talked to them and for whatever reason, we were not a fit for that season. And I think, you know, in retrospect, it's a huge blessing in disguise because, um, I mean, I was like working round the clock, just barely, barely making POs, like not even my PO failure rate was really high at the time. So, um, just pumping out ice cream and shipping it immediately, like constantly. And so if we were on shark tank at the time, now knowing how much time it takes to actually prepare and do the segment, um, and then the after effects of it, we would have not been able to take advantage of 
being on the show or have done a good job preparing. So I think like it's, it's good that we got rejected that year. Um, and then after we got national with Sprouts last year, um, Molly and I were talking and it was like, oh, do we still have that producer's email address from the one who reached out to us like a long time ago? And um, we sure did. And so we uh, emailed him because at that at, at this point now, we felt a lot more ready operationally and marketing wise to be able to take advantage of an opportunity like Shark Tank. And so um, we reached out to them and, you know, there are like many rounds of selection and like things you have to do. And we were lucky enough to be chosen to film and then lucky enough to air because not every Everyone who films airs. And so we just aired um, three weeks ago now, I think. So it's real fresh in my mind. So it's so it's real fresh. And uh, so what what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of impact has it had on your business, uh, at least? So yeah, far? so, you know, we are a wholesale item, um, pretty much. And so we did not have a fancy website or uh, e-com at all. And so we you find out a few weeks before your air date. And um, we had been trying to get a website set up, but, you know, as someone who is like not an expert in those things, it took us a really long time. Um, and we ended up getting it all together literally three days before our air date. And so I like to joke that our lift from Shark Tank was infinite because our sales online <laughs> before Shark Tank were zero and you can't nothing, divide yeah. by zero. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, but it was a huge, I mean, for us, it's the only, e-com experience we have but it was a steep learning curve because obviously shipping things frozen is very challenging um and i'm really glad we were able to find a, a good partner to work with us and in time to be able to do that but it was real trial by fire um and I mean, I, we're on the other end of it now and things are a little bit more normalized, um, but we definitely had a lot to learn and are still of course learning about this yeah who did you guys do a deal with on Shark Tank or yeah, on Shark Tank, yeah. Oh, oh, Ken. Spoiler: We did not get a deal. <laughs> <laughs> and you still saw a, a huge lift. Oh yeah, I don't think yeah. To and we weren't we weren't disappointed by that. Of course, like you know, being the A student that I am, that would have been amazing. But our expectation going in was not to get a deal necessarily. It was like, I mean, that would have been amazing. But it was more like, if we can tell America about our product, that's that's the prize. So um, I think just being on the show is really helpful. And of course, you know, the sharks had only the nicest things to say about the product. So that really, really helped. Yeah, very cool. Um, so let's, uh, I know we're, we're trying to wrap up here. You've got a hard stop in, in about five minutes. Um, let's uh, just switch over to the quick fire round and then, uh, you know, end with some concluding remarks. Um, okay. Are you ready for four quick questions? Oh, I'm really bad at thinking on my feet, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's uh, one tool or resource that you feel has helped you the most uh, in your business? One tool or resource? Oh, you know what we just started using is Figma um, oh, yeah. for design. And it's new to me and I freaking love it. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's really good for for web and mobile stuff too. Um, yeah. You know, so, yeah. Um, what is one book um, that you could recommend to the audience? Um, you know, I just read, it's, it's kind of an older book, but it's called Focus. Um, I think it's called Focus, but it, it's about marketing and like, what does your brand stand for? I listened to it on tape, to be honest. <laughs> I know. I always feel a little guilty, like saying I read it, you know, but I'm yeah. a total audiobook junkie. So, oh my God, now I feel old. It's an audiobook. It's not a book on tape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, what is one piece of advice that you would give your 21 year old self? That's a hard question, Ken, but I think I would say you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like you're on the right track. <laughs> and then, uh, who is uh, one person, um, you know, maybe another entrepreneur or somebody in your field, um, that you would love to take out to lunch? Oh, um, you know, uh, fly by Jane or, well, that's her name is Jane, but her brand is called fly by Jane. So I think she's incredible. And what she's done in the past, like, I mean, two years, I think is how long they've been around is really exciting. And so I would love to take her to lunch. She's actually local. So Jane, if you're listening, let's hang out. <laughs> what, what's her product? I've never actually heard of her. Oh, it's um, chili crisp oil. Um, it's actually just went national, at, I think national, but with Target with Lunar New Year. And they got like a huge, big um, like promotion from it. I think it's mm -hmm. really cool. Um, I mean, I just love that she's like really authentic to, to her roots and um, also being Asian American, that obviously speaks a lot to me. And um, her product is very high quality and she's changing a lot of perceptions on like, like cheap Chinese food. Cause that's like the stereotype, right? Um, and like, I, I love all of that. So, and I think they do a really good job of, um, of communicating who they are and um, their values as a company um to their consumer and i think i mean that's like business-wise like i think she does like an amazing job of, of that and so that's what i would like to talk to her about very cool i'll have to check it out yeah. um yeah so as we're wrapping up here i'm just uh just thinking about the you know it's a new year we're we're uh, the time we're recording this it's you know uh the 4th of February. So it's early in the year. What, what, um, do, what do you have coming up here this next year that you're looking forward to, you know, any new products or anything that you could tell us about? Yeah, thanks, Ken. Um, so we have our Costco rotation that's coming up and then our new Oak Pines hitting national at Sprouts. And we're really excited about our geographic growth. So we got some new distribution um, in the Southeast of the United States at Winn-Dixie and looking to grow more. Um, throughout the country. So look out America. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely look out for your product. Um, if you could give uh, any sort of parting advice to other food entrepreneurs um, that may be listening, you know, what, what would you tell them? Um, I think that it's really important to find some founder friends, especially if you're a solo founder, because this is a, this is certainly a lonely journey sometimes. And at least we have each other. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's great advice. Um, and even just sometimes just to, to know that you're, you're not the only one running into those problems. Um, that yeah. it's it itself is really valuable, you know? So. Yes. Okay. Well, Hannah, you've been great guest. I appreciate you taking the time. This is uh, this has been an awesome interview. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ken. Okay. Good luck. We'll talk soon. Bye. All right. Bye. The physical product movement podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, Thanks for listening.